I want to thank the band. They do a great job every week leading us in worship. Really appreciate all the time they put into that. I want you guys to be praying as well for our Allen Park campus minister, Mark Essek. He preached here last Sunday. He's going in for some back surgery tomorrow, so be praying that that goes well. And a welcome to our guests. If it's your first time, glad that you joined us. Hope it'll be just the first of many. If you're online, welcome to you as well. Of course, we're all here to celebrate the arrival of Jesus into the world to be our Savior, born of a virgin, but you do realize Jesus had at least six brothers and sisters who were not virgin born. And I'm wondering if you can remember the names of his brothers. The sisters are not named, but the brothers are. Now this is pointed out to us by the people in his hometown in Mark chapter six. They say, is this not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James? So there's Jimmy. And Joseph, that's little Joey Jr., and Judas, that's Jude, and Simon, little Si, and are not his sisters here with us too. So yeah, can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your big brother? <laughs> you know, mom's saying, why can't you be more like Jesus, right? And, oh, Jesus, 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 mom loves you best, she thinks you're so perfect. Yeah, <laughs> he was, he did nothing wrong. You know, in terms of... From the time he was old enough to know better, he never committed a rebellious act against his parents, never disobedient, never said a cross word, never said a cuss word, and never committed an, a selfish deed or an abusive act. He was perfect. Now, that's not to say that Jesus didn't mess up sometimes on a human level, that he, uh, you know, was maybe clumsy sometimes, or maybe he got a math problem wrong, or misspelled something, or colored outside the lines. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with those things. That's just part of being human is we make mistakes. But Jesus was absolutely perfect in terms of his moral obedience to God. He never once disobeyed God, never once broke a law or a commandment of God, and that's where we're different. I mean, we share the fact that we're all human, we mess up and make mistakes, but the difference between us and Jesus is we fail God all the time. We are disobedient. We do reject his, his word, his laws. We do fall short of God's high expectations and standards, but Jesus never did. Absolute holy and pure. In fact, that difference is pointed out to us in Hebrews chapter 4, where he's the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet the difference without sin. And I believe Jesus really was tempted just like we are which means to me the possibility of giving into that temptation because is it really temptation if there's not the potential to succumb to it it's like maybe if you were to tempt me with food if you tempt me with chocolate that's going to be really hard for me to resist but if you tempt me with liver and onions I'm good I'm okay not a problem maybe temptation was like that to Jesus like no that's okay rather not much rather serve and obey my father. 
And yet it's amazing how many people think that Jesus did commit sins. That just this year, the latest findings from the American Worldview Inventory says that some 44% of American believers believe that Jesus committed sins. Now, folks, I'm not just saying 44% of Americans. 44% of American believers think that he committed sin. Only a minority of 41% agree with the scriptures that Jesus was sinless. Folks, we got a problem because if we've got a sinful Savior, we got no Savior at all. Because if he's a sinner, he needs a Savior just like everybody else. But those who were closest to him, who knew him best, who were with him day and night for at least three years, says he committed no sins. Even his enemies could find no fault with him. So right up front, what should our response to be to him? When he calls us to follow him, it's to be like him. And so that's our big idea, is follow Jesus to become perfect as he is. Have you ever noticed these days how everybody uses the word perfect as a response? I don't know where that came from. When did that become a thing? Like, you used to say, like, well, I'll be there at 2 o'clock. Perfect. Used to say, like, okay, good. Correct, but now it's perfect. Why, what, what is this quest we have for perfection, right? Is, is there really anything perfect in this world? We talk about somebody who's a perfect 10. You know, the beautiful, great body and all that, but that person knows all their flaws and they know how to conceal and hide them, right? Think about perfection and like gymnastics, 10, 10, 10 score. No, there's, there's something that's not perfect in that performance. I don't know that you can find perfection really anywhere in this world. And certainly when it comes to our morals, we've all lied, we've all stolen, we've all been unfaithful in some way or another, coveting, lusting, uh, we have ignored God's counsel, we have rebelled against his commands, we have suppressed his truth, we have disbelieved his claims, we are sinners. We fall short of his perfect standards. And yet Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5. You therefore, everybody read it with me. Wow. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What? How, how do we possibly do that? So we're looking at these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how they each give a different perspective or different aspects of Jesus' character. We've already seen Matthew present him as the messianic king. We saw Mark present him as a suffering servant. If you missed those two, watch them online, listen to the podcast. Today we're going to talk about Luke, his perfect human. And then on Christmas and Christmas Eve, Eve, Christmas Eve and Eve, 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 Wednesday, Thursday, we're going to talk about John's eternal God. And I hope you're going to be here for that or join us online. Invite people uh, because they're not just going to show up or tune in on their own. They need a personal invitation from you. But I hope you're also taking me up on this challenge to read this Christmas season one of the Gospels. Get to know Jesus better. Appreciate him by reading one of the Gospels. Get out your Bible off the shelf. Go on BibleGateway.com. Get that version app on your device and take some time. Maybe you're going to read through Luke which is the longest gospel, 24 chapters. That's just the longest book in the whole New Testament. The second longest book is the book of Acts, which guess what? was also written by Luke. So Luke gives us more words in the New Testament than any other person. He gives us one-fourth of the whole New Testament. So Luke is a pretty important guy. But if you start now, read two or three chapters a day, you'll get through it by New Year's Day. And it's, you know, it's take you about the same time as it takes to watch a Christmas movie. You know, two and a half hours. You'll, you can do that. So you may 
remember, well, if you've been here for a while, I, I already preached through Luke, the whole, whole thing. I started at Christmas time, 2015, and went all the way through Easter of 2017. So it, it took a while to get through Luke. So we know here that the key word in Luke is son of man. He focuses on Jesus as son of man. In fact, that's one of Jesus' preferred titles for himself. And I think it's because it presents both aspects of his nature. It has a dual meaning to it. Because first of all, you could, he could just say, I'm a son of man, and just mean I'm human. Right? You could, we're all sons of men. Right? You go back to the Old Testament, God would call the prophet Ezekiel, son of man, just you're human. But then you get to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And son of man means something different. There he's referring to a divine figure. So Jesus could, could say, I'm son of man. And for those who are paying attention, they got it. Oh, he's talking about being that divine messianic figure from the book of Daniel. And so it, it made sense. And the truth is, by being both son of man, human son of man, divine, he is qualified to be our savior. Here's how. First of all, you've got to be divine to die for the sins of the whole world because your one infinite life is worth all the finite lives of all time put together. But not only that, you have to be a perfect human. To be qualified, you can't be a sinner. To, to be a substitute for others, you have to be sinless. Sinful people need a savior, but a sinless one does not. He can become the savior. And so that's what the gospel is. Gospel means the good news that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, was crucified in our place, rose from the dead, and those who share that good news message are called evangelists. So the four gospel writers are the four evangelists. And, and what they did when they wrote is it's, they were doing more than just giving us these historical biographies of Jesus. They wrote with a purpose. Gospels are a unique form of literature that are meant to persuade us to put our faith in Jesus. The purpose is to get us to believe. So you, you put them all together, all four give you this, this fuller picture of who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught. They all su supplement and complement one another. I mean, that's why we call the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, because they see the same. They kind of tell the same way because they were all written about the same time, 20 to 40 years after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven. Now, John, his is a little bit different. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that, you know, on Christmas Eve, Eve, Eve. And how he wrote much later to fill in all the stuff the other guys didn't cover. But here's the thing. It's not like they're all telling exactly the same stories. Yes, they do repeat some and one or the other, maybe three of them repeat it or two of them repeat it or they overlap. But it, it's not like they're all doing it exactly the same way. Because let's face it, 2,000 years ago, it's not like they could put a recorder under Jesus' nose and transcribe every word he said. And just like any preacher, you know, you, you give the same message at different times to different people. I've just, I'm already, this is the second time I've done this message today. It's a little bit different from the first one. But it's still the same message. And so you're getting a fuller picture if you go back and, you know, you watch both of them together, right? So he, he does that. Here's where they all come together, though, is they all have the same emphasis on why Jesus came. They focus on his final week, on his death, 
on his resurrection because that's the gospel message. So they, they put this all together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and using their memories that have been kind of boosted by the Spirit, using their own personalities and backgrounds. They give us this full resource material on Jesus. They all tell it from their own unique Vantage Point, which speaking of that, do you remember that movie? Like back in 08, it was called Vantage Point starring Dennis Quaid as a secret service agent for the president. They're in Spain. There's this assassination attempt. But what they do is they tell, they look at this just as one day, these few hours, they go back and tell it over and over from the perspectives of different people who were there from the secret service agent and then they they tell it from a tourist and then they they tell it from a a police officer's perspective and then the media's vantage point and when you go back and you see the whole thing put together it begins to really give you the full picture of what really happened gives you more context more nuance that's what happens when you put the four gospels together because one gospel wasn't enough to give us the full picture And by the way, we needed four because it would be very easy, I think, to dismiss just one gospel, right? To say, well, that's just that one guy. Um, He could have been wrong. He could have been, could be fake. It could be, it could be biased, whatever. But now you've got at least four guys, multiple witnesses, all giving you the same kinds of stories, not contradicting one another, but telling it a little differently, but with consistency, which maybe you've heard of the story of the four students who were driving to school together to take a big exam. They're all in the same car, but they're late. And so when they show up, they give the excuse that they had a flat tire. And the teacher, she was trying to be very understanding. And she said, I tell you what, I'll let you go ahead and take the test right now. Great. In fact, I'll give all four of you an A if you answer just one question right on the test. Happily, they agreed to that, and they all sat down at their desk. She handed them all the test paper, and there was only one question on it. Which tire was flat? Mm. See, if all four gospel writers were telling the exact same stories in the exact same way with the exact same words, what would you think? They got together and, and got their story straight. That's, that, would be, that would be collusion, right? That would smell fishy. If it was all exactly the same, but the fact is how they tell the same stories, but in different ways. Some add these details, some leave out those details, but you put it together and that would hold up in court. That would be a very credible piece of evidence to show these documents are genuine and authentic. Now, the books were written by these inspired men. Yes, it's God inspired. And I'm not talking about being inspiring like a painting or another work of literature. I mean, God literally directed the writing of these four books. But it's not like God was mechanically dictating to them so they could just kind of sit there and God was, you know, writing through them. No, God used their own unique styles and personalities and experiences to communicate his words. But what he did is he made sure that what they wrote was accurate, that it was purposeful, and that it was protected from error. That's inspiration. And you put those four together, you can, you can actually buy a book called A Harmony of the Gospels. There are a number of them out there that take all four, put them together, and make them one continuous story. Nothing new. That goes all the way back to the second century. A theologian named Tatian put all four together in a book called The Diatessaron. I know that sounds like that blue cosmic cube in the Avengers, but that, no, that's the Tesseract. The Diatessaron is a harmony of the four Gospels. And, and it... it comes from that Greek word uh, dia tesseron meaning out of four from the four and so that's why we've also got these four creatures we've been looking at that each one represents a little bit different aspect of the gospels 
right, that um, these, these four creatures come from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, New Testament book of Revelation. Nothing in the Bible that specifically links those four creatures to the four gospel writers. It's just something that developed over time, became a great memory device, and it shows up in a lot of Christian art, architecture, and churches and cathedrals. We've been showing you some photos of different examples of that. We'll put a few more up here on the screen so that you can see how these four different Creatures represent the four. I mean, we've looked at the, the winged. Do we got the photos up there? Uh, there? Yeah, there we go. So you see the four. There's a, there's a lion and uh, an eagle and an ox and a person. And we, we've said, I think the, the way it makes most sense, you always see John's gospel being the winged eagle. John's always the eagle because the eagle is kind of this, you know, lofty, high creature you know in the sky majestic and that's how John presents Jesus as eternal God the other three though sometimes get switched around sometimes the the lion is Luke and sometimes the man is Mark and you know they're so don't in other words don't make too much of this don't read too much into it but here's the way I think it makes the most sense that Matthew is a lion why because Matthew was Jewish and he was writing to a Jewish audience and to them Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah right? Lion's king of the beast. Jesus is king of the Jews. The ox represents Mark because the, the ox is a beast of burden. It's a beast of service. It would eventually get sacrificed. And Mark, writing to the Romans, emphasizes that Jesus is the suffering servant. But now you come to Luke. Luke is the man. Why? Because he presents Jesus as the perfect ideal human because he's writing to Greek-speaking Gentiles. He was writing to, to the Greeks who really appreciated the idea of trying to perfect man through philosophy and wisdom and beauty. And so he, he's, he's presenting this portrait of Jesus as being the, the highest sub, sublime ideal of what a human should be. But more than that, he's somebody who forgives men for their failings, for not being perfect. And he's able to redeem them and perfect them. So this is what, why it makes sense. Luke, Luke is a doctor. He's an educated man. He's writing to Greeks. And uh, his style is the most literary of the group. His has the most polished style very interested in long teachings of Jesus. And I said he's writing to Greeks, but more specifically, he's writing to a man with a Greek name, named Theophilus. And we don't really know who that was. It must have been somebody pretty important because he calls him Most Excellent Theophilus, which reminds me of a Bill and Ted movie, like Most Excellent Theophilus, right? That's the way I always read it when I see it. But uh, this, this is a, a book written to this man, I think probably to inform him or to affirm his faith. And you think about Luke as being, he's a Gentile himself. He's the only one who's not Jewish out of the four, right? Two of the, the gospels are written by men who were part of the 12 disciples, right? Matthew and John. Mark was also a firsthand eyewitness, but he's known as an associate of Peter and probably just recording Peter's sermons. Luke, well, that guy wasn't around. He wasn't in Israel with Jesus. He, he lived in Syria, we run into Luke later on in the middle of the book of Acts, which he wrote, because he was there. He's, he becomes this partner with Paul on these missionary journeys. So Luke gets a lot of his information, obviously, from Paul and his sermons as he's preaching to both Jews and Gentiles, which is why Luke 
is written in a way that both Jews and Gentiles can understand and appreciate. But look, Luke didn't get all of his information from Paul. You know why? Because he says, I did my research. I became an investigative reporter. I dug into this, and he is a thorough historian who is very concerned with the details. In fact, he starts his gospel like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, there were other people who were writing gospels. Could be that he was aware already of Matthew's and Mark's, but maybe there were others, and, and certainly there were, there were, we know about false gospels that came about, and he's like, all right, I'm gonna make sure you guys get it right. I wanna set the record straight. Here's what's really happened. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, like Matthew and Mark, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Okay, so like Paul. It seemed good to me also, having followed, he followed all things closely for some time past. Why? To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have, what? Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. That means he interviewed firsthand witnesses, like the apostles, like Jesus' brothers, like his mother, Mary, which is why we get all these great Christmas stories in the Gospel of Luke. Because he obviously talked to Mary about all these things. How the angel Gabriel showed up and announced her pregnancy. And Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who has John the Baptist in utero. And he jumps for joy in the womb. And Mary sings this great song of praise. We call it the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In fact, Luke records a lot of songs like that. When, the, when Gabriel makes the announcement, you know, it's, it's, it's another song. It's the Ave Maria, right? Hail Mary. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. He got all that from Mary. Chapter 2, then, we, you know, practically everywhere around the world, we're reading from this passage these great Christmas stories. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. See how interested he is in the historical details? Does his research? And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, geography, <laughs> which is called Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. I know I'm not reading this as good as Linus does. He does a way better job at this, but hang with me there. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Notice, not just the Jewish people, for all humanity. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, another great Christmas song in Excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then the story of the shepherds showing up at the manger. And um, then you get, get the story of Jesus being taken to the temple, eight days old, being circumcised. A couple old prophets show up and, and supernaturally recognize his identity and prophesy that he will be a light to the Gentiles. In other words, to all of humanity everywhere. God, Luke is a very cosmopolitan gospel with a world outlook. 
And only Luke tells us anything about the childhood of Jesus when he was 12, you know, at the temple again. Where did he get that from? From Mary, most likely. And she tells how she pondered up all these things in her heart. Luke is the only other gospel to give us a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew was the first. Remember, he tells how Jesus is the rightful legal heir to the throne of David because he comes from that royal line going back not only to David but to the first Jewish person, Abraham, because he's writing to Jews. They're very concerned about that. Luke, though, you'll notice he gives a completely different genealogy. Why? Because most likely he's going through the lineage of Mary, not Joseph. And again, Joseph was his adopted father, so there wasn't a bloodline through Joseph, but there is a bloodline through Mary. And Joseph is mentioned there more as like he's called son, but it's more like son-in-law. And that lineage goes all the way back, not to Abraham, but to Adam. Why? Because he's a savior for all mankind, all right? So if I were to outline the Gospel of Luke, I'd just break it down into three basic sections. Here's the first, Jesus' birth and preparation. That's chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 4. Going through his, his uh, baptism, his temptation in the wilderness. That leads to the second major section, Jesus' message and ministry. From the middle of chapter 4 through chapter 21. All these great stories that Jesus tells. 23 parables. 18 of them only Luke tells. And how he has a profound interest in people. Has compassion to the, to the poor, to the sick, to the sinful does all these miracles of healing to help people. He, he treats women with importance, with, with pretty countercultural at the time. And in his humanity, Luke shows him praying more than the other gospels do and, and teaching on prayer more than the others do. He loves everyone, which is why he came to give his life. And that's the third major section, Jesus' death and resurrection, chapters 22 through 24. And I think through all of that, we come out of the, with one major key verse in the whole gospel, Luke 19.10. Let's all say this out loud together. This is the reason for him coming into the world. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came into this world to be the perfect human who could make the perfect sacrifice and become the perfect Savior for you. He came to seek and save you. So what should your response be to all that? Well, first thing would be to receive him as your savior because you're not perfect. You're a sinner who needs a savior. Now you may think you're perfect, but let me do my own investigative reporting and check with your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents and I'll bet I'll dig out some dirt on you. I'll bet I'll find a very different story because let's face it, nobody bats a thousand. We've all fallen short. We're not perfect. The only way to get into heaven, guys, is to be perfect. If you're going to go to a perfect place in the presence of a perfect God, you best be perfect. But if you've already blown that, and we have, then you better be forgiven. You better let God look on you as if you were perfect. The gospel, that's it. He came to pay for your sins. Only somebody without sin could pay for the sins of others. And guess what? Only he cared enough to do it for you. First Peter puts it this way, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, this wonderful trade took place on the cross. All of our sins were put on Jesus. The one who is innocent 
look guilty in the sight of God so that he could take away our sins. And all of his righteousness, his perfection was placed on us. He covers us so that when God looks at you and me, he sees us as if we were innocent. The sinless counted as a sinner. The sinners counted as sinless in God's sight. That's a pretty good deal, right? Wouldn't you want to take that trade? That's an awesome deal. But it's a limited time offer, guys. Don't pass it up. Don't delay on it. You've only got today that we know of to take God up on that deal. So put your trust in him. Repent of your sins. Turn to him. Be baptized into him. Let him wash away. Make you pure, clean inside through the sacrifice of Christ. So whether you're with us online or you're here in person, we want to invite you to make the best decision ever to receive Christ. Let us know how we can help you with that decision. Text that number, 734-304-7248, or email us next at southpointccc.com. We will get back to you as fast as possible so we can, we can take care of this quick, fast, and in a hurry. We can pray with you. We can answer your questions. Or go out in the lobby after the service if you're here, room C and D, or to, to the point by the main entrance. We can show you how to be baptized today. We're ready for you. We can show you how to do it at home. But let's get you holy and clean and pure in the sight of God. Now, if you're already a believer, then what is your response? What's well, that big idea? Follow Jesus to become perfect as he is. Now, see, here's the difference. A lot of people say, I'm not going to become a Christian until I get my life cleaned up. I'm not going to, until I get my act together, then I'll become a Christian. No, got it backwards. You got to come as you are. Let him clean up your life and help you to become like Jesus. See, in God's sight, you become sinless. You're forgiven. That's why you know you're going to heaven. But then the difference is the Holy Spirit enters your life. The Spirit of Jesus comes in to clean up your life and to help you to become more like Jesus. You got a power you didn't have before. So that in God's sight, you are sinless, but the Spirit helps you to sin less and less and less and less. And that's a lifelong process. That's a journey. That's progress and growth. In fact, the word perfect can also be translated complete or mature. And that's as close as perfect we're going to get in this world, is to grow up and be like big brother Jesus, to keep following him, keep imitating, keep walking his footsteps so that we can become mature and complete in Christ and that one day when we see him, we will be made completely perfect. So I hope you're going to be back here for Christmas Eve and Eve Eve as we talk about Jesus as eternal God and invite others to come with you. But right now, let's pray together. God, we come before you confessing we are not perfect. We have messed up so many times in so many ways and we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to be our sacrifice. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us holy, purifying our hearts, transforming our character and changing our values improving our behavior, cleaning up our, our language, sanding off the rough edges of our character, God. Help us to sin less and less, to grow up and be like Jesus. Lord, we want to lift up Mark to you as he's having surgery tomorrow, that his recovery will be uh, fast and full. We pray for our Christmas Eve outreach, Lord. Right now we're still all praying together, but you pray silently and lift up the names of family, friends, and others you know that need Jesus, that they would, they would be here, they would accept your invitation.
So Lord, we're praying for some great Christmas Eve services. And uh, Lord, for any right now who are watching or listening or, or right here, I pray for anybody that needs Christ, that they would accept your offer, that, that you would convict them of their need, and they would make the best decision ever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.